Kings, you know, verse by verse. So we're to the last chapter. So we're going to read one through six. That's going to be our text for the morning. James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, this doesn't even seem like a New Testament passage. It's more reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets who just railed on against the rich and self-righteous. There's so many examples from the Old Testament and the prophets that we could cite. But even in this passage, it seems to be no hint of grace or mercy or hope, no call for repentance. And yet a lot of people will say, I love the book of James. It's like my favorite book of the New Testament. Really? So this raises the question for me as I was studying this passage, to whom is James writing? In one one, we saw that he was writing to the 12 tribes of the diaspora to the Jewish Christians who were spread out in the Mediterranean world. He's been calling them brothers up to this point in time, but here in this passage, he calls them you rich. It seems as if James has switched audiences to rich landowners who were in the first century world, some of whom were oppressing Christians and the poor. James is telling his Christian readers what God is going to do to them. This this would encourage those who are being oppressed by these rich people. James is saying justice is coming. Now, I don't think that this passage was directly intended for James's audience, the church. It would have been hard for him to conceive of rich Christians. Most first first century people including Christians, were poor. In fact, Christianity itself was comprised of the working poor, slaves, and a few exceptions of rich people. So James is speaking to wealthy unbelievers who are oppressing poor Christians. But that doesn't mean that we today can ignore what James is saying, as if it has no application whatsoever for us. I'm always amazed And how much the Bible warns against the love of money and riches. And and primarily the Bible's audience were poor third world people. What about us today? One example, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Paul there says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice it doesn't say that those who are rich, but those who desire to be rich. Just desiring wealth. 
Paul cites. And he says the love of money, not money itself, the love of money. You can be poor and still desire more and more money and be in love with money. But but wealth isn't about how much you have. It's about who you're with. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the word Jesus would have used there speaking in the Aramaic would have been the word mammon, which means material possessions. So not just money, but material things as well. In fact, the root of that word mammon is what you put your trust in. And what you put your trust in becomes your God. So God knows your heart very well. If your trust is really in your pension account, your 401k, in your savings account, or if it's in him. That's why Jesus warned it's hard for the wealthy to go to heaven because they put so much trust in riches. And the truth of the matter is this morning we're rich. Now, I know me saying that your, your ears are saying, no, I'm not. I'm not rich. You don't believe it. But you are compared to the majority of the world's people. A Princeton University sociologist did a study a few years ago. He found that 89 percent of Americans think our culture is too materialistic. And yet 84 percent wish they had more. Seventy one percent say greed is wrong. Yet 76% say having money makes them feel good, happy, and successful. That the wealthiest 20% consume 86% of the world's resources. And the poorest 20% of the world's population consumes 1% of the world's resources. And about a billion people or more live on approximately $1 a day. So is wealth always sinful? No. God has many rich friends. We could look at Abraham, Job, David. In the New Testament, Barnabas, Joseph of Arimathea were people of means. The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And and the very streets of the city where he dwells are made of pure gold. So God isn't opposed to wealth. He's opposed to the misuse of wealth. And it's very easy to misuse it. We also see in the Bible that so often God identifies with the poor and destitute and oppressed. And that he opposes the proud and the rich who trust in their riches. And and Christians used to protest injustices. They alone sometimes were the champions of the poor. They would speak out against the rich oppressors. But Christians today, we see very little of that. So let's look at our text this morning in detail and see how we can apply it to our lives. It's not just for the first century rich landowners who are oppressing the poor Christians, but it's for us as well. We're going to see four abuses that James mentions here that we should avoid. The first is don't hoard it. Verses one to three. James says they'll weep and howl. The word weep means to sob loudly like for the dead. The word howl means to shriek, scream, and yell loudly with despair like you do for the dead. What causes that? 
the misery of judgment that's coming upon them. Why? Because they hoarded wealth. God wants his resources circling about, not stockpiled in a few homes for the sake of having it. The Bible doesn't discount saving and investing. Those are principles of good stewardship. But hoarding is being in love with money and always needing more. It's never enough. I used to have an old copy of the Guinness Book of World Records, and I read through that book numerous times. I always thought it so interesting. And one entry that I remember was who was the world's cheapest miser. Now, her name was Henrietta Green. She lived in New York City in the early 1900s. It says that she and her son lived in an unheated apartment year round. They ate cold oatmeal for breakfast. They wouldn't go to the doctor. In fact, her son had to have his leg amputated because of delays in finding a free clinic. Yet in one bank, this woman had thirty one million dollars. This is in the early 1900s. Imagine what that'd be worth today. Verse two, riches. James uses it for what the earth produces. It rots and decays. In fact, in the ancient world, wealth was accumulated in three main ways. And James mentions all three. The first was food. Second, clothing. And the third category was jewels and metals. James says it spoils. It's eaten up and it corrodes. Clothes get moth eaten. Which ones get moth eaten? The ones in your closet that you wear every day or in the rotation? No, the ones that are stored up in the attic are the ones that get moth eaten. I think sometimes it's a good exercise to do this every once in a while. Go into your closet and say, what am I really wearing and what am I not wearing? Do I really need 60 shirts? Well, somebody else has none. Food goes bad. What food goes bad and rots? The food in the refrigerator that you're working on every every day of the week? No, the stuff that's stored in the bars gets eaten by the rats. I can vividly remember my bachelor days. And I think I was we were growing new life forms in the refrigerator and on the counter. Gold and silver have corroded. Well, pure gold and pure silver don't corrode. But when they're mixed with alloys, they do. It's foolish to hoard these things, says James, because they become useless. They have no eternal value. What if we stopped worrying about the amount of money that we have and instead trusted God? What if we focused on not so much the worldly things, but on the eternal things like the gospel and missions and the kingdom of God expanding? Luke 6:38. give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. See, that's how God's kingdom works. Rather than me hoarding what I've got and trying to always get more, as I give it out, it's circulated out there. It circulates back to me. Remember this passage from last week, Luke 12. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness like hoarding. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, 
I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared or hoarded, whose will they be? So it is for one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You're not taking it with you. You're leaving it behind. So don't be poor towards God. When the world is being judged, will all the stockpiles of money of the rich make a difference in that day? Will the rich enjoy their three houses and four or five cars then? Perhaps we're in the last days. James would tell us it's stupid to focus on more and more accumulation of wealth when judgment is right around the corner. What else shouldn't we do with money? Don't steal it. Verse four. God is not only concerned about what you have, but how you got it. Don't rip people off. Earn it honestly. Pay your bills on time. Pay off your debts. Instead of being generous with their wealth, these people were exploiting others. They already had plenty to begin with, and they also wanted what little bit the poor person had. Absentee landowners. That was a big, important, powerful group in the first century. Jesus actually spoke of that situation in Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard, too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, so 5 p.m. in the afternoon, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard, too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So this is how. It worked a lot in the, in the agricultural world of first century Israel. Rich landowners had land. There was a foreman on duty that would go into the marketplace where workers would present themselves for work that day. And he would choose as many of them as were needed for that particular job. And at the end of the day, they were always paid that day at the end of the day in cash. Then they could go to the marketplace and buy food or whatever they needed for their families. So this is a system that Jesus is speaking of right here. And it worked pretty well for the most part, but obviously it had abuses. And the Bible has a lot to say about the abuses regarding this economic system. Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress the hired worker. Who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land with your towns. Hmm. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Amos 8. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. 
and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Malachi 3, 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. It's right there in that list of what we would think is really bad sins. The widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God will judge those who defraud and steal from the poor and working class. The unpaid wages were crying out to him, he says, like Abel spilled blood. God sees. God hears. So, bosses, if you're in that situation, pay a fair wage. I read that Nike used to pay Michael Jordan more for the right to put his name on their sneakers, then they paid all the workers in their Indonesian factory to make his sneakers. Third thing not to do, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Verse five. Maybe your family is like this, but Kathy and I, we don't like to waste food. You know, there's a little bit left on the plate. Man, we've got to eat it or we've got to save it. And how I tend to. To treat clothing as I wear it until it's disintegrating off my body. They live for themselves. James indicts him for having lived in luxury. That means a soft life. Extra padding on the chairs. Extravagant comfort. Self-indulgence means squandered or wasted. I like the old English word wanton. We're not to waste God's resources to cater to our pleasures because luxury leads to vice. And a life of luxury and ease has a toll. Listen to these two passages. Jesus tells a story in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, very rare and expensive, and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. You know, just the scraps on the floor. Moreover, even the dogs came and looked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. I'm going to stop reading there. And then go down to Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Listen to this passage. You may be surprised about Sodom and what you thought about that place. 
Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. It's human nature, I suppose, to try to be as comfy as possible. And sometimes, you know, there are situations where one spouse pressures the other. Maybe the Christian wife doesn't really want her husband to sell out for Jesus because it may affect their standard of living. Here's what the prophet Amos says in chapter six. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp like and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, They shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the reverie of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. James in verse five reminds them these rich are like stupid cows who gorge themselves every day, oblivious to the farmer's axe in the stall beside them. They're going to be hamburger. And the fourth. Things James tells this group, don't abuse it. Thing about wealth is it gives more than simple purchasing ability. It gives power. Have you ever heard of the golden rule? He who has the gold makes the rules. The rich have, in addition to their wealth, they have authority and influence They only listen to other rich people, never the poor. What does a poor person know? If they were smart, they wouldn't be poor. People use their money to bribe politicians to make decisions that go in their favor, like rich pharma, who spends three times what the second biggest lobbyists do. So they get their way. Then. Innocent workers who were unpaid took these rich landowners to court, but the landowners bought off the judges. Justice was rigged. And in fact, sometimes the poor, oppressed man who wasn't paid his wages, he was the one that was put to death. Let me read one final story in First Kings 21. Now, Naboth. The Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This land had to stay in the family so there wouldn't. They would otherwise they would be run out and have no land and then they'd be poor. And Ahab went into his house and vexed, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat food. 
But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you not govern now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with a seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and to the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they went so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs looked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Can governments take your property? Why not ask the Canadian truckers if they can? Governments are always the worst tyrants. Governments have been evil throughout history and certainly will be at the end of the age. But one time, one day, our time on earth will be up. We don't know when that day will be, but it will be a day of exchange. All the wealth we've accumulated will be worthless to us then. We're going to leave it all behind. It's wise to begin converting it now to an eternal currency that's called storing up wealth in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, the, the word of God always has something to challenge us in, no matter what status we are, no matter where we are. So I thank you for your word today, this portion that you wanted us to hear and grapple with. Lord, help us to be careful to put your word into practice in our lives, even if it means we sacrifice. Help us to do what pleases you. Help us to be good stewards of the resources you've given as we give 
it comes back to us. It circulates. Thank you, Lord, for your word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.